0: Photography in one form or another exerts a great influence on our daily lives. An illustrative photographer must be imaginative. Metaphor actually exists in the world. Photography has more of a claim to actually being able to produce that kind of function than virtually anything else. It
1: seems like there's no author, if done correctly. I'm Jordan Weitzman, and you're listening to Magic Hour my chance to talk with photographers and people involved in the medium. We learn about their backgrounds, thought processes, and ideas that have shaped their work. Today I have the honor and pleasure of sitting down with John Gossage, a legend in the world of photography. John has worked in many capacities as a photographer and has exhibited widely, first showing with Leo Castelli in 1975. The heart of his practice, though, has lied in bookmaking which he has always considered to be the major leagues of the medium. In 1986, he published The Pond with Aperture, which went on to become a cult classic. We had this conversation at his apartment in Washington, DC. The space is filled with photo books on bookshelves that line almost every wall in the apartment. On one of the only free walls, he has several prints hanging salon style by photographers that he's either known or have influenced him. One of which is a portrait of Eugene Aceh, taken by Bernice Abbott. With the utmost sense of humility and playfulness, he said that whenever he catches a glimpse of that portrait, he sees his hero as someone like an old Jewish uncle looking over him, both inspiring him and telling him how much work he still got to do.
0: I had my first professional assignment when I was 14, shooting sports for the local newspaper, the Staten Island Advance. So, I mean, I, I had a history. By the way, my, my school history, they showed me my permanent record once, and I started virtually in the third grade, missing dates. of. School. I didn't go to school. Mm-hmm. I, by about the seventh grade, I was absent more than I was present. You didn't like school? Uh, no, I, I have a, a learning disability, a form of dyslexia is a general, very general term, but it, it's not reading kind of thing. It's, I don't write. So whenever I needed to write a paper or something, I it was less embarrassing not to be there. So and my mother was off working, and you know basically I was raised by wolves. Mm-hmm. So I would just inst- I would miss the school bus a lot and take the take ferry over to Manhattan and start in you know South Ferry and
1: walk up to the top of Central Park. It mm-hmm. was a good day. You you just walk, you just skip school and I, do whatever you do, do whatever what, a kid would do. Well, right. I'd go
0: to the Times Square record shop. Uh, which was a great... It was in the subway uh, at Times Square, and it had all the doo-wop records and a raccoon, pet raccoon. Uh, and But the truant officers started looking for kids there. Uh-huh. They'd never look for them at the Museum of Modern Art. <laughs> <laughs> I learned that very quickly. I, I, I had a membership card by the time I was like 11 or something. I asked my really? parents for it. But um, I think the story hinges on how do you educate yourself if you want to make pictures there's no schooling really there's i did the initially the two schooling things of anything that was not technical i'm sure you could learn tech Lizette models uh, evening class at the new school of social research which was one day night a week and and then uh, alexei Brodovich's design workshop and that was it it was over you know like there was nothing there was nowhere else to go. What was Lizette Modell's class like? How, uh, how did she teach? Oh, she was wonderful. She was my friend for the rest of her life, you know, basically. She would guide people rather than teach them. I mean, something I learned when I taught is that it isn't teaching that you're doing, it's encouraging learning. The best people learn, they're not taught. One thing that really affected me, I always remember, this one guy had gone out and photographed sort of uh, trees at night with sort of rain on them, the sort of glistening effect, one of those photo, cheesy photo effects. Mm-hmm. And, and what that would be, and she always called people darling. Darling. Darling, you know, darling mm-hmm. you know. If you want to photograph a tree, you don't photograph the effect on the tree, you photograph the tree itself. That changed everything for me. That, all of a sudden, you know, it's not about these pretentious kind of photo effects. If you actually want to make a photo of something, it's because you want to make a photo of it. I mean, the same, and she was very nice, too. I mean, I I took it probably when I was about 14, and you had to be 18 to be in the class. (laughs) And I was terrified, you know. I mean, most of the time I was terrified. But, you know, she came, darling, you know, you don't seem to be 18, I explained, you know. And I sort of um, this model, um, you know, this ancient Viennese aristocratic woman. Uh, I said, oh, "I'm 14," and she said, "Oh, very good." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was that kind of. She valued the fact that I was so interested, that I wanted to do that, and I did all the assignments, and I also. One of the things we talked about before we started this about my love of Ajay's and that I have an Ajay. One of the first books I ever got was this Ajay book because I asked Lizette the fourteen-year-old question: "Miss Modell, you know, who's the greatest photographer ever lived?" You know, yeah. like you know, it's kind of thing. You know, like there's got to be somebody that's at the top of the food chain. And she explained it didn't quite work that way. And you know. but she, why she was my perfect teacher because she knew how to get me. But darling, there is someone. His name is Eugene Ajay, but darling, you wouldn't understand
2: him. <laughs> so she
0: had me. She knew she had me. So I immediately went down to Whyhe Bookstore in, in Lexington Avenue, which was one of the co-publishers of this 1930 Ajay book, the only book on Ajay. I opened it up, and there's little brown pictures of Paris. It made no sense to a 14-year-old kid who wants to learn how to street shoot in New York. She was so she was right. But it taught me later, like four years, whatever, time later, when I opened it up and it was like a lightning bolt, Mm -hmm. that that's what photo books did. Like that this ability to have this material and then to return to it was so phenomenally important. To be able to revisit the books. Revisit. I mean, that's one in the books that I do. This is an aside and move out of history, but I always think of the fact that This is something that can't be a one-liner. I mean, they're they're too expensive for one. I mean, if if you go through a photographic book that costs fifty bucks, and you've gone through it once and you've basically gotten everything out of it, you've been ripped off. Basically, what do you do with the sucker then? You Mm. know, like it's it's not like as we were talking about earlier, like literature. I I don't tend to reread a lot of books. Probably count them on one or two hands in my whole life that I have reread photo books, this is sense that somehow there's more there. Or you know, you need to return to it. I mean, I don't know how many times I've looked at the Ajay book or The Americans or, you know, any of the classic books. And they still offer something. Having an open ended quality something yeah. is, is, is a key factor to a good book. And and that's what I try to do with everything I've ever done is not make it uh a one-liner not make it you know easy to get and done pictures and books yeah exactly well picture also i mean it's the other thing of of art photography a, a student asked me when i was when i did the graduate program at maryland uh, he'd come from photojournalism and he said you know professor professor gossage <laughs> uh, it's it's great when you're a high school dropout and you get to be you know like dr gossage and yeah. stuff like that. but uh you know, what's the difference between the kind of pictures I've made for the mag- magazines and newspapers and art photography? And I was like, well, I, hate, I hate smart students. You know? And <laughs> so go away. But I, I did it basically on, I said, you know, come back. Next class, I'll figure out an answer for you. And I basically told him, um, let's just take it on a market value. If you... Like, issue is the age that I have on the wall, which I've had for over 20 years. Uh, if you pay thousands of dollars for something and you're done with it after six months, you spend too much money on something. I mean, I've gotten 20 years of education, pleasure, inspiration from that picture. It's one of the greatest bargains I've ever made. That's what the difference is. and And if you're making a news photograph, you want it to to basically empty all of its information. Immediately, on the front page of the Times, you want to get all of this that's going on in Aleppo, Syria, or wherever. And you want to get as much of that information and reinforcement that the words that are written are true because you can see it happening. You want to turn the page and not have to go back to it. Mm. So it's a different form in any case.
1: Do you think about what qualities a picture needs to have or have in order to create that desire to go back to it over and over.
0: When I'm making the pictures, I don't think. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you do, you're in trouble. It's the kind of pictures I make, at least. You, But I do have a, a sense that you can make your instincts more intelligent or less intelligent. So, yeah, I mean, I consider what is... I mean, and everyone, what is quality in pictures, in photography? What am I making? I, I, make, I make things that exist generally in two forms, as single ima- images without context. They exist on walls of galleries, of museums, of people's homes. And photographs, possibly the same photographs, often they are, that exist in books where a context of book covers also, you know, it changes things somewhat. I, I mean, supposedly the admonition of a contemporary artist is you make the work and then you set the context for which the work should be seen. Mm-hmm. Base of you know, contemporary artist 101. But the book lets you do that a lot more than most of the museumology of things, where you basically are in the swim of whatever the medium thinks it is. Mm -hmm. which is dubious at best, let's put it that way. We we exist in a very, very forgiving field. Yeah. Uh, Let's say to be kind. But so the thought process of is this, to make it in the most broad sense, is this a pursuit worth spending a lifetime at? If it is, what can I encompass in it? How can you be inspired? by what the medium has done? Does it appear to offer opportunities? Uh, it obviously offers pitfalls too if, if you avoid the opportunity. I, I try to do that mm-hmm. uh, as best I know how.
1: So what was the first work that, that you did get or that really inspired you? The Americans. Robert's
0: book looked like the world around me or close to it it wasn't that far away and that that sense of order disorder you know it would seem even though he was it seemed very american to me where i knew of cartier bresson's work but it seemed very european somehow Mm -hmm. you know it, it seemed to match my experience of the streets of new york and give me you know more reinforcement to go out and try to learn how to Photograph on the streets of what people were doing. Is that what you did? Oh, yeah. I mean, that that, that was the mode that you worked in, you know. Then.
1: Street photographer, like a black and white.
0: Like a black and white. Or by I mean, color photography. Yeah.
1: No, no one did color photography except
0: those fashion guys. <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, color for you know, until uh, Bill and Stephen, color photography is, a, a, well, I think Evans called it a vulgar form. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, it's, uh and also, it, it, color was very, very hard to deal with. I mean, getting prints was just... You couldn't make them yourself. It was, it, it was very unwieldy yeah.
1: form. So Robert Frank, the
0: Americans, Cartier-Bresson. I, 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 well, I got to go up and uh, visit. I, I mean, Really? Well, how I learned, I had this revelation these people I was looking at in these photography annuals, which is where I sort of, popular photography had an annual in U.S. Camera, which had best photos of the year. So obviously I'm trying to find the best, you know, how to make the best photos. And I had this sort of instant, oh, most of these guys are in the same city that I live in. I'll put my pictures under my arm and ask them how to get, how to get better. It was just sort of, you know, I had a lot of time. I wasn't going to school, you know. like, uh, I went up to Magnum. Well, I didn't know Presson didn't hang around Magnum all the time. I didn't know he lived in Paris. You know, I had the luck of the draw. I mean, I one day I knew where Magnum's headquarters was. I went up, put a little eight by ten box of prints under my arm, and went to the receptionist and said, it, "I'm sure I mispronounced his name too. I wanted to see Cartier-Bresson." She sort of looked at me, and then did, did the thing that utterly ruined every pretense I had because she called back. He says, Petier, there's a child here to see you. <laughs> <laughs> it was over. You know, all oh, and all oh, puffed upness, whatever you can get as a young teenager. it was gone. I was a child. I was ready to slink out of there. And he, he sort of came and looked at me. There was a big white partition that I think said bagdamon. He looked around and said, oh, Young man, what can I do? You know, what can I do for you? and i told him that i i'd seen his pictures and i thought they were you know wonderful and i wanted to know how to get from where i was to where he was and he was incredibly generous it was very, you know i mean you know like you don't kick puppies but you know it, it was very more than nice he looked looked at my pictures said i you know asked me how i shot too and i needed more discipline he showed me his contact sheets really he said you know i usually i will, you have to photograph something when you see a scene you have to work it you know it was like i usually i remember he said either either the first one is the one or i take at most seven pictures Mm -hmm. i know he came up with that number you know but you know it's probably whatever the contact sheet was and he showed me how he worked the scene and tried to said you know if 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 i haven't gotten in seven it's not going to happen and um and then he did a the you know, secondary thing. he said that it was time to get a sandwich get some lunch and i should come to lunch with him you know a little coffee shop. but he brought his camera and i remember i'll always remember this it was like how people wait on the street corner in new york for the light to change he sort of moved in front of them and took like two or three pictures and it was like he was a ghost it was like no one noticed him, and the thing the thing that worries you so much when you're young is that all this embarrassment of street shooting that you know people will notice you and you know, and it's just it's an embarrassing thing to do. And I was always had to steel myself to get over that to make the try to sneak them. He didn't sneak them. He just did it so naturally. It was like a fluid movement. I mean, this has been described often about watching On, but like I saw it, and I, I knew. I, I remember saying. I want to learn how to do that. And it was like, this was, I mean, most, 99% of the people were incredibly kind. Eugene Smith taught me how to print. Really? I wanted to buy a Leica from him. Wow. Because he had a Leica for sale, somebody told me. It was so beat up, I was afraid to buy it. <laughs> and he needed money, obviously, Gene often, And he said, he looked at my little box of prints and said, uh, he really didn't know how to print very well. So he taught me, you know, he taught me his methodology. He said, you come by and pay $10 in an hour. And, it would, and the hour would always last four or five hours. I'd hang around. And, you know, he'd show me what he was doing and we'd talk and people would come by and play music. And, uh, you know, it was just like this great, initiation i won the national teenage photography contest from u.s camera camera 35 one, one of their magazines with this print of these two kids lying on a rock and and they had two balloons above them that they had so they're lying flat and the balloons were way up in the air a long string gene made the print for me really <laughs> so i know how to print this it had lots of black and a little white and everything and I won the contest, <laughs> and they commented that I really, really I printed amazingly well, and I never told anybody. So this is it. I'm out. They're gonna take the award away from me now. <laughs>
1: yeah. that's funny. How old was he at the time? Jean? Yeah. I. They were all old. Mm-hmm. I,
0: I. You know, you're a kid. Every. I mean, Lisette was ancient. Lisette, you know, like she obviously wasn't. She's probably younger than I, I am now yeah. but it's like everybody was they were adults I mean I, I I didn't have many kids that were my friends my friends were mostly adults mm-hmm. uh, one because <laughs> nobody hung around the same place they were all going to school <laughs> I, you know, I didn't go a lot
1: There's a Diane Arbus quote that I love and I always think about in terms of making pictures and kind of going back to what we were talking about before about that um, that quality that certain pictures have that keep you keep you looking. Mm. And it's the, uh, you know, a photograph is like a secret of a secret. Yeah. The more it tells you, the less you know. Yeah. I wonder if we could talk a bit about that, a bit about what that means to you.
0: I think, I think she's being slightly coy. Mm-hmm. But I mean... Diana was incredibly seductive in a very, you know, in a profound way. Mm-hmm. You know, she, 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 she would play little games with things, even with herself about things. Very complicated, very interesting person. Photography functions in a very funny and distinct way. I mean, Louis Baltz is a, it's a it's a very narrow but deep medium is right it doesn't really do a lot of things extremely well the other mediums do better cinema particularly emotion pictures uh, literature you know paintings but what it does it does exceedingly well which is it sets forth a threshold that if you present interesting information we're willing to cross regularly with the viewer of any image in that we're willing to entertain that this world actually existed previous and elsewhere
2: mm-hmm. and
0: enter that world, at that, that one moment, that still moment. And stillness is a very, it, it, it's an attracting thing that we don't get to experience in everyday life. I think it's, it's one of these things we wish could, we wish we could, I mean, any of your memories, you can't bring back mm-hmm. that, detail still moment of every I think m- most people cannot possibly somebody can but you know and this ability to have everything everything that's in front behind to the side you know everything in that frame and then if you can figure out a way by adjusting that to dis display some kind of meaning that's communicable either in things or in people that fascinate, that, that, particularly in Arbus's case, that particular expression that doesn't dissolve into any easy explanation. It's not a smile. It's not a friend. It's something else that implies complexity. Mm-hmm. Can you imply that complexity, that possibility that actually metaphor actually exists in the world? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an interesting... The photography has more of a claim to actually being able to produce that kind of function than virtually anything else. It seems like there's no author, if done correctly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it can be... You can use photography for virtually anything, but you, you a lot of what goes on denies its inherent strength. So the secret, the secret is it doesn't really give itself over to words very well. It, they're two conflicting systems mm-hmm. so that they don't ever really, really mesh well. I mean her statement, enigmaticness of her statement is, that it is very, very similar to the enigmaticness of the photograph that she's describing. Right. It's functioning for you exactly like a photograph. It's something that's repeatable and it's still not fully understood. Right. You keep going back to that statement, you know, a photograph is a secret, like, you know. And it seems perfect, it seems true, and it's not quite definable. That's the strength that photographs pull off. And you can pull it off every possible way from the way Jeff Wall does, who's one of my most admired artists, which you know it's not true. But it doesn't matter because the fiction has been
1: so so authentically presented. Do you have any cues that you respond to? It's interesting. When you go to make pictures, often you respond to things that you've already seen as pictures. And that's maybe why you're responding to them. How do you get past that regurgitation of work that's come before?
0: It's a function of maturity. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and the fact that the pictures come quick and that I've seen, I've seen them all.
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, witness the books that you're surrounded by. Will you ever take a picture that you think you've already seen? No. You won't?
0: Because it's not, I make them for my own education. Right. If I know that, I don't need to know it again.
1: Making something fresh or new. Or uh, attempting. Is what excites you.
0: You know, I mean, you know, and mostly I'm making pictures that fail. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, that's what we all do. A lot of failure. Yeah. Oh, sure. You know, like it doesn't... You know, if you go... I mean, the the project I've been working on for the last few years is possibly, I don't know, the last uh, black and white film project around America. And, you know, I'll shoot 10 exposure rolls with this camera that I use. And, you know, if I get, you know, if I get one picture that I print per roll, you know, I'm doing really well. Right. You know, so basically nine reinforcements of clumsiness, Mm -hmm. mistakenness and stupidity. You know, like, it's really life-affirming to go out and make pictures. Yeah. Uh, You know, but that one supersedes that, obviously. You forget about the mistakes. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the mistakes are based on, this seems pretentious. This seems overwrought. Uh, That was why my friend Tim Carpenter sort of convinced me into doing a book of failures. I thought it might be interesting.
1: Your most recent book.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Which came from a conversation at a party, uh, with Tim where I just had gotten the idea of failures in my head. I never had an idea I was going to do a book of it. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were having this conversation over wine and such and, you know, I was like, you know, failures are interesting in photography. And, um, so the book- and then, 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 then he, he sent me an email to me. He said, when's the book going to be ready? We you want to publish it? And I said, what book? The failures book. We want to do it. We're all scheduled. <laughs> oh, crap. <laughs> Is that how it happened? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly how it happened. And then, actually, it was one of the most interesting edits I've ever done. It taught me a great, great deal. Because, as we've talked about, I didn't want the book to be a one. It, could be, it was the easiest one-liner book. But they're all good pictures. I can't use them you can't use them why it's not something that that functions in my belief system it's things that seem to fail
2: mm-hmm.
0: i mean that was the interesting part it's not i mean failures in this case are not mistakes i mean that's the easiest part oh you you know you screwed up you overexposed it you missed it you shook the camera that that's like nonsense a one that's the worst one-liner so can I make pictures that someone might be able to use, but I can't? So it was the, the ultimate audience book. It was like offering up something. Maybe you can use this even though I can't. It seems overstated or understated, or it seems to be a whole prelude to something that I don't deliver
1: on, mm-hmm. or it seems all artificial. We were talking before about Robert Frank and the Americans seeing yeah. that work, and Cartier-Bresson and that type of work, doing you know, um, you know, street work, yeah. funct- functioning as a, as a street photographer. But I've never seen any of that work, mm. and it seems that the work that you went on to do was more akin to Ache or Evans. Mm-hmm. I mean, had I mean, uh, I guess a bit more of a documentary style or objective. Kind of quality mm-hmm. to it does that broadly broadly i mean right.
0: i mean these people
1: understood what the photographic
0: potentials were mm-hmm. and also uh as I'm doing it coming up younger, street shooting is pretty much getting worn out mm-hmm. they there seemed to be you know there's no opportunity here uh at least that that I could figure out i mean someone will figure it out or has figured it out, yeah. Uh, but it didn't, it, it, there were a lot of players, you know, uh, Friedliner and Winogrand sort of came up and sort of ended it, you know, in in their in two particularly different ways. And it didn't seem that there was, you know, further to go with that. Also, I moved out of New York. Mm-hmm. I came down here to Washington, where there's a lot less to shoot on the street. It may just be that simple. It's not intellectual at all. It's just, I lost my subject. Yeah you have to understand one thing, always understand when I'm starting this stuff, I'm very young. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, what, what the kind of, how do you try to figure stuff out when you're 15 or 16 or 17? There are lots of other issues, you know, like, you know, who's my girlfriend going to be is more, is more important than what's my
1: style going to be like? Yeah. Yeah. A lot more. Uh, Seems like you were thinking about those things too. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 (laughs) I don't know I don't know which one I was more successful at. <laughs> I mean, I another issue.
0: But you know but you know, um in my case, as opposed to figuring it out and deciding what you're gonna do, and I think this is actually more true for most your style sort of finds you. Mm-hmm. If you pay attention your successful pictures if if you're a good audience for your photographs your photographs tell you what you do well or what's being offered to you and then you look for what the rest of the field and see if there's some degree of opportunity there I mean as I told you with Arbus uh, I photographed with my little square negative camera portraits of people because for a while before realizing that there was the greatest uh, portrait photographer of my time in my way. People would, you know, as, as she got known, people said, God, these are, you know, almost as good as, or as good as, if they were kind, that woman's pictures. Yeah. But it was always referenced with that. She won. I mean, I, I should have known from seeing the little box of eight by tens that she, and I instinctually did, that she had done everything that I had, it's, might aspire to do and things that I never thought were possible. Right. I mean, you know, you, that's something you learn when you're young. You get out of the way. You know, because there's, you know, the crude metaphor. The 900-pound gorilla's in the room. You know, you're not going to get around this. Mm-hmm. You know, there there is an opportunity here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also what the world offers you. You right. know, the, you only know how to take pi- pictures of a small, small segment of what the world has. Mm. It's like a sliver. And... You know, n- no one gets it all. Actually, I didn't get it all.
1: Do you still feel that um, same sense of excitement going out and making pictures? Yeah, I mean, I mean,
0: possibility. Mm-hmm. It's like there's an opportunity now. Mm-hmm. Let's. I mean, also, I, what's something I should? I'm either on or off duty. I don't carry a camera all the time. I'm really, not I'm really happy to be off duty. Uh-huh. Things to be just what they seem to be.
1: You carry a camera only when you go out specifically to yeah. make pictures. Yeah. Uh-huh.
0: Uh, and then it's like a different attention span. Right. I'm, I mean, especially the kind of pictures I make, which are of generally ordinary things. I mean, that's actually worth, you know, why. That's an intellectual decision, too. That that's where the greatest opportunity lies. hmm But it's it's maddening. If I had to pay that kind of attention all the time, I'd never get anything done. I couldn't get my laundry done. hmm you know, it's it's nice to be off-duty. Yeah. But uh, what, one of the things that guides me is that I think the greatest opportunity in making pictures of what can be made, of pictures that I've not seen made and I don't know where to find elsewhere, isn't the most mundane and ordinary situations. I mean, to, to be able to go out and on a day, I mean, this is paraphrasing what Bob Adams has said, I'm sure, much more eloquently, but to go out on a day... And be able to make meaning out of ordinary life is a phenomenal gift. I mean, it really that, that that excitement is this opportunity to discover something meaningful in my in a day-to-day activity. Roaming around Omaha, Nebraska, say hmm. that's interesting. Yeah, that's that that's a way to live a life, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, all the the great events and everything. The pictures are always less than the event mm-hmm. my pictures are more than the event yeah there's a great richness to that that's interesting to me that's that's life affirming in in, in a way that um, I, i'm glad i've had the opportunity to do i mean and the the fact that some other people get that is just icing on the cake i mean it's really you know like i'd do it if nobody else got it but me right some days I feel that <laughs> especially, especially when people write about it they say, what
1: <laughs> <laughs> when people write about your work yeah yeah
0: i i I'm, I'm very I'm very accepting of it, but it's like, huh
1: <laughs> Tim carpenter's done a pretty good job, though
0: oh no t- no i mean I mean Tim's the, a great writer i mean, there's good stuff too, yeah. you know, the, like Robert Adams reviewed the Pond. right, you know like I, you know Lewis baltz has reviewed you know like. Gus Blaisdell you know, like there, there have been people that have written, you know, gee, I didn't know I was smart <laughs> until I read, until I read about Gus Blaisdell read Why, why does someone that smart actually like what I do?
1: <laughs> the Pawn was your first book. Uh, actually, the
0: second. The second. Uh, uh in we did. One of the conceptions I had, which I've sort of abandoned, but I wanted to do, I did a book called Gardens for Castelli,
1: my gallery. For Castelli. Yeah, Leo Castelli Gallery. So you were showing at Leo Castelli Gallery. Yeah. How did that come about? Louis Baltz was the first photographer to
0: show with Castelli. Mm-hmm. became a friend of mine. And we were all in a show in Baltimore called 14 American Photographers that Renato Dinesi, the director, uh, curated, and I helped him somewhat on because his scheduling I can select the pictures but not the photographers and Leo sort of used the catalog as a wish list I, I I won't remember all 14 but it was like Robert Adams Bill Eggleston Lewis Baltz Lee Friedlander uh you know it was like the usual suspects in yeah. any case you know myself and um it was the moment in time when it seemed when Leo, who was always very ambitious for all of his pro- you know, all of his gallery projects, n- noticed that you know, like, he liked what Lewis did because it related more toward work like Donald Judd or such that was actually in the gallery, Flavin. Uh, but he wanted to do more and he asked Lewis who we should do. And he asked uh, my friend who I mentioned earlier, Walter Hopps, a curator, and they both said me. I I was actually at the point here in Washington where I realized I probably had to move back to New York to make the contacts to get a gallery Mm -hmm. and I had this amazing I mean graduate students hate me for this because (laughs) they they always want tactics and everything you know I was sitting you know, in an apartment and I got two letters, one from Ileana Ben and one from Leo Costelli, <laughs> asking me to be in the gallery. Uh-huh. Uh, and my dealer down here, Harry Lunn had made contact and said that like gallery wanted to be, be in their gallery. So I did not, I realized I didn't have to move back to New York. Uh, when I was quite young, uh, a girlfriend of mine uh, who was older, uh, Bought me a uh, Lichtenstein drawing from my 17th birthday from Leo. <laughs> uh-huh. And I'd always wanted to be in Leo's gallery. Like this was the, the greatest gallery on earth as far as I was concerned. And yeah. I went up and saw Leo and uh, wound up being, you know, shaking his hand. What was that, he like? He uh, was always scary because he was Leo Castelli. He was like the greatest dealer on earth. And he was much older than you were. And he was incredibly gracious and suave. And you were sort of a little bit afraid of him. I mean, it wasn't his doing. It was just who he was and the fact that, you know, he'd been there and, you know, created so much art history and had the best eye and, you know, in all of the world. So,
1: yeah. (laughs) So so it was a a big honor.
0: It it was a big honor. I mean, I I didn't you know, didn't need to do any more gallery stuff. Yeah, had a, after that yeah that uh, kept you
1: going for a little while
0: what, yeah, about 15 years yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah. your pictures sold yeah, uh, somewhat I mean again they weren't I mean Lewis Baltz and I had a, a drink on Madison Avenue uh, once when we decided that finally our pictures cost more than the frames uh huh I mean, Leo, Leo didn't know how to do second rate. He did use a man named Jared Barker who did the best frames in New York, and the frames were more expensive than the prints. Hmm.
1: <laughs> how much were the prints going for at the time? Oh, like
0: two hundred and fifty dollars, or you know, like I mean, Leo. I remember Leo once coming in to me and said, "Oh, John, oh, it's also, Why is photography so inexpensive?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, you understand. It took him the same time to sell a photograph for. 200 or $500 as it took for him to sell a Jasper Johns painting. Right. I mean, you know, like, you know, it, it's like a waste of his time to sell this stuff. I mean, just give them away. Yeah.
1: I mean, still, compared to the other arts, it still is a relatively inexpensive medium. I mean, it's obviously, oh, yeah. you know, yeah, we, we've come a long yeah. way, but it's, yeah. yeah.
0: Well, it's also a multiple in, in the main, hmm. you know, and the art market prices are driven by the singularity of the objects. Right. I mean, just the simplest thing is two guys in a room, at an auction room, who are used to getting in their way and have deep pockets, wanting the same object. Right. That's what drives the expense of anything, in the, and the fact that even the suspicion that there might be another one derails that
1: that event, mm-hmm. that interaction. How were you framing your pictures at the time? Were they simple black or white frames? Uh, th- things would
0: would. Be different. I mean, I did a uh, show, these big black Status Schwartz pictures that were, you know, 30 by 40 inch things and they were framed like big things and they leaned into the room slightly. At the time? Yeah. Elia Castelli? Yeah. Uh huh. Huh. It was actually one of the nicest installations, and the nicest comment Richard Sarah liked the installation. Oh yeah, yeah. I was, I was like <laughs> I took that as like plus. It was, like, uh, it. <laughs> <laughs> it was nice. I mean, it was nice. I mean, Leo was also incredibly great. I mean, he, he when anyone was around, he would introduce you to everybody. Right. You know, Rauschenberg and Johns. Uh, but my first show was with Jasper Johns. Wow! I mean, you know, how do you beat that. That's I pretty mean, incredible. I mean, you know, it's like you know, Jasper was around for a few days. He's very, very nice, quiet man. And you know, all of his pictures were pre-sold, and I think about you know a couple million dollars each. Wow! And you know, mine. He was like he was upstairs, and I was in the graphic space downstairs, and I. Suggested to Leo that we just change the wall label for mine. Just say John's pictures. <laughs> we could we could charge a lot more for them. Jasper found that funny. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> I mean, it made sense. I mean, it was a good marketing ploy.
1: <laughs> so back then, you were thinking, um, you were thinking a lot about the the con. I mean, the the context of the gallery and how your pictures would be presented. Were you thinking about that? Well, I mean, books seemed, I mean, I remember Louis
0: Baltz and I, you know, sort of, we, he'd had new industrial parks out before I did the pond, but we both sort of had this vision that this was our, this is like American Photographs. This was our one book. And then maybe when we got old, we'd do, an, you know, someone would do another one. I mean, I mean, I had a lot of publishing options. Either I could do it with Aperture, I could do it with Aperture, or I could do it with Aperture. Right. I mean, you know, like it was just wasn't anybody else.
1: Yeah. And how about the idea of doing it on your own, just self-publishing it? You know, I mean, no? that, that was
0: sort of lame. And yeah, I mean, Lewis did that with industrial parks, and he basically gave away virtually all the copies. I uh-huh. mean, I'm he, you know, Lewis had a little bit more economic resources than I did. I couldn't afford to do it. Yeah. And then you had all these books under your bed. <laughs> you know, I mean, mm. it was just, I mean, distribution is still the devil, but it was like there wasn't any mode for it whatsoever, mm-hmm. as self-publishing. You could do shows regularly, right, and you thought about how work should be presented in exhibitions
2: uh-huh
1: was that how you were earning a living at the time, or yeah that yeah, was yeah, but you were teaching as well well
0: yeah, well, teaching was sort of funny, I mean, I got asked to run the graduate program at University of Maryland, and I'm a high school dropout. Mm-hmm. I'd never been in a college classroom. <laughs> I thought it was funny uh and um, and I said the the great thing to the head of the department when I, that I didn't have time because I really didn't to do faculty meetings or any other stuff but I teach the classes and he said fine hmm. so I went in one day a week and taught a class to people I selected because it was graduate yeah and I enjoyed it a lot I enjoyed the process I enjoyed the interaction it helped me form my own thinking to actually have to verbalize it which I never had to do I mean you know like like Eggleston and I, you know, like when I was in Germany a lot, in Berlin, they'd always think, well, what do you talk about? Yeah, well, Bill would say, well, that's a good one. <laughs> Thank you, Bill. Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> we talk, nobody talked about the American, German photographers always talking about theory, whether it's objective or subjective. Michel Schmidt would just go batshit because I, I don't
1: care. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good yeah. pictures or not good pictures? Yeah,
0: it's just like, that's a good one. Yeah, <laughs> I like yeah. that. And yeah, it was sort of implied.
1: Yeah. How about Eggleston? We were talking about b- before about him, and you were going to tell yeah. me about how you met and, oh, uh, and how you guys became friends. Oh, um, uh, Bill
0: Christenberry uh, was a friend of Eggleston's from uh, college days in Memphis, and he lived across the street from me. And he just said, you know, I have this friend coming by, and he's in town, and you might want to see him. And Bill brought a bunch of black and
1: white and color pictures, and uh, I thought they were remarkable. He always says, he always talk. I mean, I've, I've heard him be quoted about the, you know, one picture of one thing thing. And I never, I'm never, I'm never able to believe it. Is it oh, sure. That's, so that, that's yeah, in mean, fact I'd, what it actually was.
0: Well, I do the same thing. I take one picture of stuff.
1: One picture. Yeah. It's like, on.
0: why do you need a second one? I mean, occasionally I'll, I'll worry about some, something being inexact or crooked or something. I'll take a second one. But yeah, I mean, it's just the methodology. Mm-hmm. Uh, why do you need two? There'll be one extra then.
1: Yeah, harder to, to decide.
0: Yeah, no, no I mean decide. To, to you, you already got one. Why do you need a second one? I mean, it's not like a difference.
1: When you started to work in color, digital color, mm-hmm. did that? Did you work the same way? Did,
0: yeah, you, yeah. Oh, pretty much. I mean, digital is really because you can just, just <laughs> delete the crap. Yeah, I mean, pretty much. Uh, I mean, wh- one of the reasons I started to work. I always hated film color.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, wh- when you have film they have to engineer a color space in. Actually, a, a Bill sent me up, I, I did two dye transfers in the 70s with Bill's people just to see and they look like weak Eaglesons. I mean, it was, that's Bill's palette. It's not It's not what I see and I could never make color pictures when there was film. It just, you know, like I didn't, uh, I was married to Terry Weifmark, who's one of the great master color printers. And, you know, I'd try it. And he said, no, you can't make that exposure, this crossover. And he, he, I just couldn't, could not get them to look the way I needed them to look until digital got good. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like I basically asked Martin Parr, you know, what kind of cameras do the Magnum guys do? And just bought a 5D. And, you know, went out. And the first day I made one picture that wound up in the book, 32-inch rewind. If I can make that one it looks right, now I can now I can make color pictures. And mm-hmm. there's certain projects that really need color.
1: And I can do that. Did you start to print those yourself?
0: Yeah, uh, yeah. well what I did is, um, again it's the same way I did when I was a kid. I, I hired a really good uh, custom printer in St. Louis where I actually had been doing a project and met him. And he, and I had him do about you know a dozen or so pictures and I bought a big Hewlett Packard printer, and I printed on it until I could match his prints.
1: Hmm. There was a quote that that I heard you say a little while ago, and I'm not sure if I'm might be paraphrasing a bit, but it goes something like, I have no idea what I'm doing anymore, and I'm absolutely sure of it. Yeah. At this point, I've developed a style, and I think that style is the sum of all my inadequacies. I know what I can't do. Yeah. I mean, I mean, style can be
0: looked at from the other side. It's it's just the sum of your inadequacies.
1: Right. You just got to keep on going. And I mean,
0: I mean that implies that you actually do some things adequately. Yeah. Totally. I mean, you, it is a praise in a funny way. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I still have things that interest me. I mean, we were looking before. I have the pictures that I made last week. uh in interim time when mm-hmm. i had to go out and you know do some family business but there was downtime when there was nothing to do so i went off and photographed mm. and the pictures fascinate me again and surprise me mm. and educate me and give give me indications that there are more pictures to be made
2: mm.
0: in a project that i thought i was totally over with mm-hmm. you know that I, it's downtime to get you know do do whatever editing i do and figure out what it's going to be uh the fact that that makes life interesting. I mean somebody asked me, you know, well what are you gonna do when you retire? Said, retire? Well I've never had a job. How do you retire if you never had a job? You know but it never, you know, like I, I will stop making pictures when I physically can no longer make pictures. Yeah. That's it.
1: So what are you working on now?
0: Uh the America Project. The America been, Project. Yeah.
1: What's that about?
2: Uh America. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> what, what's George Washington's white horse's color? Yeah. <laughs> you walked into that one. You go, Fucking Canadians.
1: <laughs> that was my conversation with John Gossage. This episode was produced by me, Jordan Weitzman, and was edited by Crystal Duhain. On location sound engineering by Lenny Pierre Ramos. Music in this episode was by Poddington Bear, Damien Lazarus, Michelle Macklin, and The Monks. Join me next time when I sit down with Gregory Halpern to discuss his work and his new book, Zizix.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.